0: Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking... Isaiah's encounter encounter with God as he describes it in Isaiah chapter 6. And although we've looked at this passage several times, we haven't yet exhausted it and it still has a lot to offer. And what I want to explore today is what Isaiah discovered about God in this encounter. With the Almighty. So the first four verses of Isaiah 6. Some of you probably know them by heart by now. But just to remind you, it reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each had six wings. And with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices... The doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So what did he learn? It's worth just pausing here for a moment and reminding ourselves that in Isaiah's day, long before Jesus' disciples would be anointed with the Holy Spirit in that upper room, And before we could enter into a new living relationship with God was started. Experiencing God's presence, let alone seeing him, was a rare occurrence. Isaiah's contemporaries simply didn't have that kind of relationship with God. They didn't have the sort of relationship that spirit-filled Christians enjoy today. Encountering God for them was a momentous, terrifying event. And I think as a church, we need to remember that today. We need to remember what it truly means to be awestruck, overcome in awe of someone. In this case, overcome with the overwhelming awe of the Almighty God. The God of heaven and of earth. In short, it must have blown Isaiah's mind. You see his choice of words. He says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And that suggests that he had some visible manifestation of the invisible God. That is a remarkable fact in itself. And when you add to that, that Isaiah observed a number of other facts, which we'll be looking at this morning, it becomes astonishing. These were incredible revelations to him. Last week I mentioned That due to the death of the king, the throne of Judah was suddenly empty that year. But as Isaiah witnessed, the throne of heaven was still occupied. God is, always has been, and always will be on his throne. And you know, nothing or no one has the power to remove him or evict him from that position. God's sovereignty cannot be overturned. But all the same, Israel found herself feeling quite vulnerable after the king's death. The kingdom looked leaderless, and in particular, it was facing up to a threat of international terrorism. All the people could see was a political vacuum. If you like, the ship estate was at sea, and there was a storm brewing, and there was no captain at the helm and as a result they were in despair but God opened Isaiah's eyes to a very different scenario something more than he'd ever seen before if you like what Isaiah was saying in that opening sentence was in the year that we lost our human king I saw the real king the sovereign of heaven and earth. And it was an utterly terrifying vision. He came face to face with the Eternal One. God was letting Isaiah know who was really in charge of world affairs. It had never been King Uzziah. Neither would it be the threatening monarch of Assyria. The true monarch was the Lord. Now, the word that we find translated Lord in that opening verse of Isaiah 6 isn't a common word in the Old Testament. It isn't commonly used to refer to the God of the Hebrews. That name, the one with which he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, was Yahweh, or as we sometimes say, Jehovah. But instead, Isaiah uses a different word. He says, I saw Adonai. I saw the Lord. Now, this is a bit of a twist in the story. Because Adonai isn't God's name. Rather, it's one of his titles. If you think, when we address prominent public figures, we often don't only use their name, but we use their title as well. We might talk of President Bush, we might talk of the Prime Minister Gordon Brown, we might talk about Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And in these cases we use their title before their name in each case. And in the same way here, Isaiah was introduced first to Adonai rather than to Yahweh. And that title identifies God as a sovereign monarch and a ruler over the entire universe. Another occasion when God's title is used in scripture rather than his name is found in Psalm 110 where David writes... The Lord, Yahweh, he uses on that occasion, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Do you understand that? The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Now that's a text that puzzles a lot of people, because it seems like God's talking to himself. Jesus, in fact, took up this text in order to raise a question that baffled some of his accusers. You can read about it in Matthew 22, verse 41. It says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet if then David calls him Lord how can he be his son no one could say a word in reply and from that day no one dared to ask him any more questions think a wise move but here David starts to identify Yahweh as the one who is speaking to the Lord well If he was David's Lord, how can he be David's son? Jesus was getting the Pharisees to think about the nature of the Godhead. In effect, the Trinity, because in this he is starting to identify two of the three distinct persons, Yahweh and Adonai. I mention this because it raises another question. Did Isaiah see a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God himself that day in the temple? Did he see Jesus before he came to earth? Elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us that no one has seen God the Father. And it also tells us that it isn't possible to do so and live. You can read about that in Exodus 33.20. And then John's Gospel tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. That's in John 12, 41. And then John quotes directly from Isaiah chapter 6 at the same time. Jesus himself confirmed the reality of his pre-incarnate existence and his former position in glory when he came to earth. Because he prayed... Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's from John 17, 5. Now, we can argue about this point. But the point is, Isaiah saw God. And he saw him in all his glory. Fully in control of everything. And if we can just grasp the reality of that fact that God is on his throne and totally in control of everything, then our whole perspective of the world and our circumstances, whether we're in adverse position or in dangerous circumstances, will never be the same again. God rules the universe. And he does it in such a way that not one stray atom can wander where it wants to without his permission. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-seeing. He's absolutely free in his choices. He's free to choose what direction he wants to take things in and in his deliberations. He doesn't have to consult with anyone. He is totally in control. And the good news is, that means we don't have to be. Martin Luther, the reformer, went through some really difficult personal and spiritual troubles in his life. But as he searched and studied the scriptures, he discovered the gospel of God's sovereign grace to the undeserving he came up with many fresh and radically new theological understandings and as a result those who criticized him hounded him and persecuted him. In fact he got charged with heresy as a result he was subject to some bouts of quite deep depression and one day It's written that his wife, having grown weary with her husband's depression, had herself started to lapse into an attitude of despair. The death threats, the constant criticism that they were relentlessly exposed to had gotten to them in a particularly bad way. And after this deep bout of depression that lasted for weeks, his wife, Katharina, realised that something had to be done to get him out of it. She decided to do something quite radical. She dressed herself completely in black. She wore black dress, black stockings, black shoes, black gloves, black hat, with a black veil hanging over her face. And then she took Luther his supper... He was in his study, and there was she, dressed as if she was going to a funeral. And he glanced up at her and said, Has someone died? Yes, she said. Indeed, it is a most terrible loss. God has died. Now, this shocked Luther. It shocked him into ignorance. Indignation, and he straight away started to protest. He said, what? God cannot die. He is the eternal one, the ancient of days, who alone dwells in immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. God cannot die. That is blasphemy. His wife just quietly said to him, quite astutely as wives often are, You speak the truth so well, my dear husband. But if that is so, then why have you gone about these last six weeks in such misery and despair as if the Eternal One was no more? I'd concluded that God must be dead. Luther saw the point, and he didn't ever forget it. You know, if we ever have even a glimpse of God's glory we'll be ruined we'll be ruined for the ordinary because we'll no longer want to play at having a relationship with him we'll want to be basking in his glory day after day some of today's youth leaders well meaning probably in their efforts to stop teenagers getting turned off for church have sought to try and make Jesus look cool they've suggested that he's into rock music That he, if he came back today he'd wear faded jeans that he'd play an electric guitar and he'd enjoy going surfing but I tell you what Jesus is not a hippie he isn't some cool surf dude And he certainly isn't a skateboarder. He is Adonai. He is burning with holiness. He's not cool. And he doesn't want followers who are cool. He wants red-hot disciples who are willing to be launched into a world-changing destiny and a mission that will touch and impact this world. Because they've seen his glory. Isaiah had a revelation of that very fact. God seated on his throne, reigning in awesome power. You know, God is not some impotent old-age pensioner sat in a wicked chair. He's not constrained to a wheelchair. He doesn't have a tartan blanket over his legs. He's not falling asleep in stupor, and he doesn't have a white beard on his chin that rests on his chest as he falls asleep. His strength doesn't diminish with age, because he is the Eternal One. He doesn't change, he doesn't age, he doesn't become senile, he has no weaknesses, no handicaps, and he cannot die. He occupies the throne of the whole universe. And he always will. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves of this fact. He is Lord over everything. Whether visible or invisible. Whether on the earth or outside of it. No angel, no demon can threaten those of us who belong to him. No man or woman can harm us arbitrarily because the king is on the throne and we belong to him. We're under his watchful eye. We're subject to his complete control of all the events in and around our lives, whether they're big or little. And because of that, we can possess a sense of peace about things. We don't have to panic, because whatever is happening in the world around us, God is in control. He knows what has to be done. And he isn't phased or upset by anything. Isaiah saw God sat on his throne. And then he says, he was high and lifted up. High and lifted up. He's lifted up high in the sense of his own nature, in his status, in his stature, because he is far above everything that he has created. And we need to acknowledge his sovereignty. God has no point of origin. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal. Just about everything else in the universe had a beginning. What I mean by that is, there was a time when it wasn't there. But God has no beginning. Before any energy or matter ever came into being, God was there. The infinite, the personal God... The source of everything. The source of you and I has always existed. Francis Schaeffer called him the God who is really there. In the world's eyes, matter is eternal and matter made men. And then man made his God or his gods. But that is a distorted and dangerous worldview. And you don't find it supported anywhere in the Bible. Genesis makes Genesis one makes it absolutely clear that God is eternal. And God made both matter and then man for his glory. He is the creator. And we are mere creations. He's not dependent on us. He doesn't need us for his existence or his welfare. In fact, totally the reverse is true. We are entirely dependent on him. God is distinct from everything he's made. He's different. He's different from the angels. He's different from the planets. He's different from the stars and the insects. And he's different from man. And the difference is he made all those things. Whilst he is absolutely self-sustaining, self-dependent, self-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need anything. He's beyond every attempt we might make to manipulate him or even tame him. He just can't be contained, and he can't be tamed. He never changes. He doesn't have good days and bad days. His mood never cools. His enthusiasm and his affection doesn't change. He is always burning with passion. Passion for his glory. Passion for his son. Passion for his church and passion for his people. You know, some people say they get bored with church. God never does. And it's time that as a church we recognize that. And then Isaiah's view just changes. Just for a moment, he stops looking at God and he starts to recognise what's happening. And he tells us that the train of God's robe filled the temple. It's quite a striking image. Here's the king, resplendent on his throne, wearing a royal robe. And yet that robe was of a scale unlike anything an earthly king could wear. doesn't matter how grand or glorious it might be. The robe that Isaiah saw was far different scale. I think it's a timely picture. Because what it tells us is that God's robe extended and filled every available space and what it tells us is that it's a picture of the way heaven is touching earth God is present with us he's not only transcendent he's imminent as well he's within reach he isn't just up there he's down here as well he is the God who is everywhere he is in every place And he can show up where we are and take us by surprise. And he's really very much present with us. He's not retired, he's not absent. He is the living God. And he's constantly showing up in places. He shows up in his manifest presence and he does things. Because he's always on the move. He's invasive in this world. Yes, he's transcendent. He stands above it. But he's right here with us too. He owns the world. And he doesn't ever shirk his responsibility for it. The devil would like to stake his claim to the earth. But the devil has never created anything, not even a single blade of grass. The devil hates God's creation. He hates what God is doing, and like some sort of cosmic vandal, does everything he can to destroy it. But in contrast, God loves to walk through the world. He made it. And he visits it with his power from time to time. And that's why we can't put God in a box. That's why we need to drastically extend our experience and our vision of him. Because he's the one who takes charge of lives and takes charge of destinies of world rulers. He's the one who controls the affairs of entire nations. In his hands... At the exact times that people will live. In his hands are the exact boundaries of nations. And as Paul tells us in Acts 17, God doesn't live in man-made temples. Because actually even the whole universe can't contain him. He doesn't need us, but he does want us, and we most definitely need him. We're only sustained for any single moment in our lives because of his permission and power. If God for a single moment withdrew that grace from us, we would just drop dead on the spot. We would even cease to exist. And so here, in this instant in the temple, as he encountered God's presence, Isaiah saw and took all this in. He saw God on his throne, surrounded by awesome, amazing and frightening angelic beings. And he saw that the Lord's temple The Lord's train completely filled the temple. Now don't get me wrong. Think back and think what this meant. The temple was a huge building. It had taken years to construct and it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Its outer courts held tens of thousands of worshippers without any problems of overcrowding. And then Isaiah could see that this vast space was filled just with the train of the Lord's garment. Just with the train of it. Just with a small part of the massive whole. Isaiah realised that we're dealing with a big God I know earlier I uh, asked a question because when I read this passage I just get question after question Why why was God wearing a robe I think he was wearing a robe to help Isaiah understand his kingly office Because as humans, we tend to infer things by the clothes people wear. We make assumptions about their office and and their function. Clothes carry significance. They mean something to us. If you're driving in a 30 mile an hour zone at 45 and you spot what looks like the uniform of a traffic policeman, particularly if you think he might have a radar gun in his hand, Suddenly you feel that panic, your foot applies to the brakes and you properly slow down to about 23 miles an hour in the hope that you don't get zapped. What about the uniform of a fireman? It's not the kind of uniform you want to see on your street when you're driving home from work. When you come around the corner and see smoke hanging over the street. What about the white coat of a consultant surgeon who has in his hands the recent results of a scan you've just had done? These uniforms immediately convey different things to you. And different things are conjured up, powerful feelings and emotions. And Isaiah was left in no doubt About God's office and power. Because he saw him in kingly robes. They were the robes of a king. And the one who wore them was the Lord. Without having had the benefit of Isaiah's experience ourselves, it's probably hard to comprehend the vision of God that he had. But that doesn't make it invalid. If anything, what it does is it authenticates it. One of the early church fathers wrote, I believe Christ died for me because it is incredible. And I believe that he rose again bodily from the dead because it is impossible. I like that. I'll read it again. I believe Christ died for me because it is incredible. And I believe he rose again bodily from the dead because it is impossible. The whole thing makes it more believable. We've got to remind ourselves, our God is an awesome God. Did we sing that this morning? Our God is an awesome God. The incredible with him becomes credible. The impossible becomes possible. And it's time that the church believed for both the incredible and the impossible. Because we follow the God of the incredible and the God of the impossible. Scientists claim that they can understand and explain and measure all kinds of things. They know the weight of tiny particles of dust and they seem to know the weight of entire planets too. They know the distance to far away stars. But science has never been able to measure God. He's beyond our comprehension. He's above and beyond the scope of our understanding. And even more fascinating is he stands completely outside of time. Time exists in him, but he stands outside of it. And then his knowledge and his power are just unfathomable. When I'm out and about in the car, I often put a CD on. It depends on my mood, quite what a CD it is. Sometimes it's a worship CD. Sometimes I listen to talks. But once in a while, I listen to Radio 4. I like Radio 4. I think it's terribly entertaining. Now, I'm in no way at all a gardener. If you have any misconceptions about that, talk to my wife. She will put you straight. The last time I cut the grass, I had to spend two days in bed. So, that was because of allergies, not because of idleness. I would point that out. But (coughs) gardening... Don't talk to me about gardening. But, you know, I do find gardener's question time quite intriguing. And one day I was listening to one of the panellists as he gave quite an interesting response to a question that he'd been asked. The question he was asked was, who would you like to visit your garden at home and why? The panellist responded, I think I'd like it to be God. I thought straight away, I want to hear why. So I stayed listening, and he said, I'd like to sit down and have a little chat with him about some of the things that go on in my garden. I'd like to talk to him about green fly and about certain types of caterpillar. (laughs) I'd ask him about slugs and what they do to my begonias. Now... I just smiled to myself I thought I'll tell you what if God showed up in his garden not only would he not be able to ask inane questions about slugs but he'd be lucky to remain standing on his feet but this is an example of the way proud modern sceptics attempt to limit the living God have you heard them? When I meet God, I'm going to ask him about that, and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. You know, it's an indictment on the church that the world sees our awesome God as some small, cuddly, harmless, and benign being. So that a worldly, unbelieving man thinks about him that way really, it's a testament to our failure. It's a testament to our failure to bear a credible witness to the real nature of God. The God that we worship and serve. (coughs) The God that we've presented to the world has been confined to a box. Sometimes it's only accessed on Sundays, And only then in his house. Oh, and that's just down round the corner. He's been domesticated. He's been made safe and approachable. No one's scared of him anymore. Think back to the priests on the day of atonement the one day of the year in the temple when the high priest would enter the most holy place, would step through the veil to offer a sacrifice for the atonement of the people he did so only after having purified himself richly and even then with bells on the hem of his garment and a rope tied round his ankle So that if the other priests heard him stop moving because the bells stopped ringing, they would haul out his dead body with the rope. It's time that our vision of God broke out of that box. It's time that our vision of God became as big to us as it was to Isaiah. Let's just ask ourselves a couple of questions. When was the last time I felt compelled to bow in His presence? When was the last time that I was afraid of God? God isn't just a weekend hobby. He's not an occasional recreational activity that we can indulge in when we miss the car boot sale. And when we find time to turn up to church instead. He has to be our daily obsession. You know, our inability to see God in the way Isaiah did isn't about our eyesight. It's about our heart attitude. Isaiah knew something. <coughs> he knew that any problem we have with God is rooted in us. We need to rediscover that same awe of God and His presence that Isaiah had, if we're going to move on. In summary, it's about time we let God be God. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.